and welcome to the gray area where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray and this is the 79th episode in a weekly series called Full Steam Ahead. Here with me is Jerry Ellsworth, electrical engineer at Valve Software. Welcome, I'm so thrilled to have you here. Hi, I'm, I'm honored to be on. Um, it's very exciting. Yes. This is Tinzian. He is my occasional co-host, and he's here to help uh, if you decide to get geeky because he is a computer uh, network engineer, so he can uh, he can handle some of the more detailed Wonderful. questions. It's a pleasure to meet you. Yes. Last week's episode was a discussion with Chris James, former lead level designer at Bioware, EA, and LucasArts. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today's Thursday, August 16th, and we're going to meet Jerry, talk a little about Valve and her projects. So, let's start with news of the week. News of the week. Yes. What so, week? Uh, you, you told me that I had to tell you something that was exciting that was going on around here. It doesn't have to be exciting. Exciting. Well, you know, the thing that um, seems to be the most exciting in the building right now, so we're actually we're sitting right here in Valve, because uh, I don't, I just moved to Bellevue and don't have my internet um, set up at my house, but um, the Dota International, the Defense of Ancients International competitions going on in a few weeks, so the whole place is a buzz of like trying to prepare for that, so it's going to be some big venue in Seattle, and they're flying in all the pro players from around the world, and uh, they're going to be giving away some ridiculous amount of money. I think last year it was a million bucks to the first place uh, winner, and I think it's, I don't know if any of that's been announced yet or not, but it's pretty darn big this year. Do you go? Do you go to the event? Um, I didn't go last year because I was just starting. I've only been around here for one year, and uh, I'll probably go this time. It's the same week as PAX, so I'll have to split my time between Ooh, going. That's <laughs> rough. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's not even the same venue for some reason, but it's close, apparently. Okay. Well, then that's not too bad. People could hit them both. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just dive right into it and start with some history. Um, not to rehash your entire past here, but I guess go to some backstory. Uh, as a child, I was reading that you had toys, as a typical child does. And I read that you took these toys apart to see their inner workings. And I'm interested why the inside part of the toys fascinated you. Because most kids, I think, just assume that their toys are alive in some way and they treat them like imaginary beings. But have you done that or why the curiosity for the inner workings? I didn't like that things were magical and beyond my understanding when I was a kid, even at the age of probably five or six years old. That's when I started destroying all my toys to try to figure out how they worked. So much to the frustration of my father, I took almost every toy that I got apart just to see how it worked inside. And it was many years of taking toys apart um, before I started to get an understanding of how these, these toys worked. Um, got to the point where my dad quit buying me toys and just started bringing in broken electronics, old toasters and stuff uh, that he would find in various places. He owned a, a gas station, and at one point he had a box sitting out front that said, put your broken electronics in here um, on a little sign. And then every couple of weeks he would bring home these boxes of various things, and it was I was in heaven. I mean, I enjoyed taking the stuff apart more than playing with the toys. And eventually I started putting the stuff back together, like some of these broken things. Like I really 
like there's an old Betamax VCR with all these tapes and stuff. And I wanted to know what was on those tapes. And uh, so at, at one point I figured out how to get the belts and stuff back on and see what was on the tape, which was actually some uh, um, softcore porn, like, oh, uh, no. <laughs> like that uh, shouldn't have been resurrected. type stuff. So were you a uh, precision dismantler or do you sometimes just take a hammer to it and try and figure out what was making it tick? On the first days, you know, I had limited tools, so, you know, just like take a rock to it and just bust the, the case open. But eventually I would, you know, I pretty much stole my dad's tools out of his work area and then <laughs> used those. And I got very creative because my father didn't want me to use certain tools. So sometimes you had to jam like a screwdriver into a place it wasn't supposed to go and try to like pry things open. And I learned a lot about mechanics that way by um, doing things the wrong way. I even made my own soldering iron for soldering wires together out of an old resistor. And I hooked it up to one of these wall warts that you plug into the wall. And the resistor would get really hot, so hot that it would melt the solder. And that's how I soldered for years until my dad caught me one day soldering. And uh, he's like, oh, my. Uh, I think we should get you a real soldering iron and teach you how to use it right before you burn the house down, which was a good thing. That was one of my questions. Have you ever had any, like, scary accidents with the things that you were doing? Where, especially, I mean, you're dealing with electricity and other things. How did that work? So probably my earliest scary accident that I had when I was probably, like, six or seven or something like that, my dad brought this huge box full of automotive light bulbs home from his gas station that, and gave me some lantern batteries so I could hook them up with wires. And so I had a desk lamp, so I unscrewed the bulb out of the desk lamp, and I tried to take one of these small bulbs and drop it down into the uh, socket and try to get it to line up on the, the connections <laughs> down inside, which it, it blew sparks all over the room. Oh, of course, no. I shorted out, popped the circuit breaker in my room, and then I knew nothing about how to, like, restore the power in my room. So I had to go to my dad and, like, something happened. and Something I, Something happened. <laughs> Something happened. There's no power in my room now. And that is awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had some other scary stuff. Uh, uh, some pretty nasty shocks working on television sets. I mean, there's many kilovolts in television sets, enough to uh, get your attention, that's for sure. <laughs> get your attention. Okay. <laughs> Just recently, a couple of years ago, I was showing a friend how to repair an arcade monitor and I'm like, this red cord that comes down the back of the monitor, you want to steer clear of this. And I grabbed the, the cord, which was insulated, and I just kind of wiggled it back and forth. And there's like this suction cup clip that hooks it onto the back of the CRT, and it popped off. And a big spark jumped down the length of the cord and got me like with full force. Yeah, I flopped back and I'm like, oh, oh my God, that's... <laughs> do you, do you that's have like special gloves and things you can wear now? Hopefully this doesn't happen. Well, you know, I have had a, a lot of shoes. scarier things happen in my life besides electronics. That's pretty, uh, pretty mild overall. <laughs> I could imagine that. Okay. You have a very interesting life. Uh, you go out and do things most people just talk about. Well, you know, I was, I lived way out on a farm in rural Oregon, you know, where people like to crash cars into trees and roll them over and stuff for fun. <laughs> so hmm. you kind of had to do what what you could with what you had and uh, so got very creative with entertainment and that's how I got into electronics and mechanical things and welding and work at my dad's gas station so I learned all kinds of skills there 
Well, having a dad as a mechanic, uh, did he ever have the desire to take things one step further and change some of the designs on the cars to make them, I guess, faster and more efficient? Did he have that creative drive as well, or is that something you inherited from him? Um, yeah, my dad was a maker type. Uh, around the farm, he would build things, like if he needed something to, like, you know, trap a cow in to do whatever gnarly things you do to a cow, um, he would build his own instead of buy it. So, yeah, and he had some hot rods along along the way, so I saw that, which kind of gave me the direction to get into cars later on and racing and doing all that stuff. Okay, so it is something it kind of... It seems like an inherited thing almost, like creativity. I noticed that in artists and things like that. It, it sort of runs down the generations, which is kind of a, a cool inherited he, trait to have. He never tried to push it on me, though, and maybe that's why I, I picked it up. But he was actually, you know, he's still alive and, and kicking and doing well, but um, he's never been really a very intimate um, kind of guy. So there wasn't a lot of, and, unless I was useful, I wasn't really included in a lot of his um various projects okay so once you started to get into cars was this more of a bonding project for you both and did he support your racing no so um some backstory on the cars a bit so i was such a good kid up to about high school and actually kind of started in junior high like all the kids were picking on me because i was so nerdy i was into computers and electronics and and i just kind of snapped in high school and became this like really i just tried to be as much of a rebel as I could because it would protect me from the bullies. Like if I was unstable and doing stupid things and, you know, people would just steer clear from me. So the racing was something that I had saw my father do a couple times. He'd built a little car and raced it at a local dirt track, an oval dirt track. And I thought that was pretty cool and probably the wildest thing I'd ever seen. And I wanted to do that. And so I asked my dad to help me build a car and he was dead set against it. It's like, no way, I'm going to do that. You're going to kill yourself. And he, for about six months, he did almost, he did everything he could to discourage me from going down this path. But um, I was bound and de determined to do this. So I bought some VHS tapes that explained how to build a chassis. I started going around town. I started working part time in a machine shop on the weekend. There was um, an old machinist that took me in and made me work really hard, like cleaning all of his lathes and mills and stuff. And in exchange, he would teach me how to do simple things like turn a piece of metal or use a milling machine or, or a lathe. And um, eventually my father, he, he didn't support the building of the race cars. He's like, well, there's only two ways you're going to actually be able to do this. You're going to either have to buy one yourself, which there was no way I was going to do it working for $4 an hour or something, yeah. whatever minimum wage was at the time, um, or I had to build it myself. And so that's what I set out to do. And it took me about, I don't know, maybe a year before I had my car done. And halfway, he was still trying to discourage me, you know, to protect me. That's why he was doing it, not because he was mean. Um, but halfway through the build, he's like, hey, she's serious. She's going to stick with this. I might as well get in there early and make sure that she does it. <laughs> And doesn't kill herself. Possible. Yes. And then after that, he, you know, I didn't do so well the first year, but he was my biggest fan. And then I started doing really well. And in my father's typical fashion, he like, like other things like sports that I'd been involved in, in the past, he would like, 
he's like, he would try to guide my whole life to do that. So it actually became a bit of a problem. He, uh, uh, was living through me. It's like, okay. yeah, if I, if I didn't have a good race, he would tell me like, well, you know, turn three on t- lap 20, you could have, uh, you could have had that race. But no, it's a great experience because I started building my own cars and um, added to this whole wild um, personality that I was trying to um, propagate out there. And uh, um, I've seen these cars, and and they look like they're made with just large pipes. I mean, when I picture racing cars, I picture like an entire enclosed surface, you know. Yeah. That, that's frightening because it, you could almost just fall right out of the side and, and it's, I'm sure you're crashing into things. I mean, it, yeah. So <laughs> these cars are built out of, um, usually round tubing, which is, um, like an inch and a half to an inch and three quarter in diameter, um, 0.120, um, thickness. It's, it's all bent and welded together. So the chassis kind of looks like a dune buggy before you put the body on it. And then there's just a very thin piece of sheet metal between, the um the ground and the bottom of your seat and the doors and the entire bodies on these late model dirt cars um is there a lot of vibration oh yes oh yes the the suspension is very stiff and your ride height the car is only about four inches off the ground so this suspension is very very stiff so it, you get bruises and stuff from the seatbelts. and actually i had a lot of problems with seatbelts and I had to make my own seatbelt that would keep the belts um, on my uh, on my chest and down, I had to put a little clip between them so they wouldn't spread apart and slip off. Uh, yeah, like the ch- the baby, the baby. Ones. Yeah, very much like that. I mean, this is early '90s, and I don't know. You should have patented existed. that. <laughs> Think what could have pro- happened. Probably existed, but you know, it's information was difficult to come by back then. You know, I was lucky just to find a place to buy the safety gear. So what kind of track did you race on? Just a dirt circle or was it destinations where you would go from one place to the other? How did that work? So I started at one track. It was um, Oval Willamette Speedway and it was a third mile oval dirt. Um, So if you were to put these cars side by side, which they were restricted to be 82 inches wide, you could probably fit um, four cars across on the track to give you an idea how wide the Mm. track and then we were racing um, anywhere between 30 to 100 laps in a in a race on these tracks. And there would be about 30 cars. And we're sliding sideways and right next to each other. <laughs> and contact, you know, contact was, like, given. You were always going to be bumping into people a little bit out there. It was very exciting, very exciting. And I did really well. I um, My best year, I took second place in this five challenge that was going on where that was later when I started touring so there was these tours that you could get on and go from track to track so all in like rural Oregon and rural (laughs) California and Washington we have tractor pools I understand yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, it's pretty amazing uh, that I came from that background and now I'm like (laughs) what I do now I eventually dropped out of high school because I was making what I thought was so much money. It was, it was ridiculous amounts of money for a teenager. It's like I'd go out to a race. Um, my car was sponsored at that point because I'd been doing so well. So it was almost free to go into the race. Then I'd win like two or $3,000 a weekend. Ooh. 
And it's like, forget the school thing. You know, I'm probably making more than my teachers. So I just, and I was building cars for other people, which was side income. So I was making tons of money because my cars were fast. I had started engineering things into the cars that made them faster. Like I made my own traction control system, um, which was really an exotic new thing. And I, I came up with this clever way to do it where I tricked my ignition module into thinking the motor was over revving when my tires were spinning too fast. And mm -hmm. I would just tell the ignition module like, oh, the engine's over revving, you know, cut the ignition and cut the power. And so, so I just started dominating that. Oh. I would banned it. <laughs> oh, they banned you? They banned it for that? They said oh, that's they not legal. Thing, like, you know, that's got to have driver skill to. Oh, I see. Hmm. I would imagine as a woman race car driver and designer, you would probably attract some attention and also some unwanted assholery. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and this, isn't, this isn't the last time you've been a woman in a profession largely peopled by guys. Uh, what was it like this first time at such, young an age, at such a young age? And what advice would you have for other women who feel alone in, in kind of what they do? Um, probably my biggest takeaway from it is things are a whole lot better now. Um, the second thing is people will discourage you from doing things um, to try to protect you because um, they don't think you're maybe they don't think you're capable or they think you might get hurt um, and that you should probably ignore those those kinds of things and you know there's just going to be some mean a-holes out there that um, are feel threatened and you know I actually had a guy come up and like punch into my car because we had a collision on the track uh -huh. So my pick, you know, I pull in after the race and my pit crew's like, stay in your car, that guy wrecked and he's already been over here once and we see him coming. So I stayed in there with my helmet on and he was trying to punch down into the car and they were jumping on him and stuff. So sort yeah, of if you go hang out with a bunch of knuckleheads, you might have to <laughs> deal with some of that stuff. <laughs> really, you know, most of the stuff that I've done in my life that's been really worthwhile, everyone around me thought it was silly or tried to discourage me from doing it. And I've just come up with a rule of thumb that if if it's not hurting me um, and it's not hurting other people, um, just go for it. I mean, they don't know um, what's best for me. I really admire the fact that you will try things and even if they fail, uh, you know, you just keep going and try something else and it doesn't stop you from, from trying to go. And, and I've seen that with the computer store story as well, which we'll get to in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, probably people often ask me about all these highlights in my, my career and they're like, wow, you're so talented. And they, everyone forgets about all the tough times and, and they, they look to me like, wow, you must be like some like super hero or something, but they didn't see the the 10 times that I failed before I got to the one thing that I succeeded at. And I just, maybe I'm just too stupid to stop doing things or, uh, <laughs> um, or just too stubborn to ever quit and, and eventually just hit something that, that succeeds. I don't know. Well, it's working for you. Keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I understand you left high school, um, and you spoke about one of the mentors you had that you said you were trading, uh, cleaning his tools, and he was teaching you some metalworking. What other mentors helped you learn to use the tools and other things that eventually led you to engineering? Yeah, so 
early on, maybe even before The Machinist, I had ham radio operators that took a liking to me. They were trying to encourage me to get into the hobby because they knew I was into electronics. And and mentors are so, so critical in, I think, everybody's life. There's these folks out there that are very skilled in an area, and usually they're not um, appreciated. But if you can give them appreciation um, for exchanging information, they'll gladly um, teach you more than what you would learn in college because, you know, it's a win-win. And I had ham radio operators for electronics. I had machinists for doing race cars. When I got into um, a computer store, I had an insurance salesman that was across the street from my my store. I'm kind of skipping ahead here, but he came over and taught me how to not swear so much and be relatable so I could sell computers. <laughs> really? Because remember, I was still I was still trying to like be this wild child even into my 20s. I mean, it was just like my protection mechanism that I I built up. And that doesn't go over well when someone comes in, you know, back in the days when computers were $1,500 probably minimum. Um, you're sitting there just swearing like, oh, fuck yeah, we'll put a fucking kick-ass video <laughs> card in there. And, yeah, that's, that doesn't instill belief in folks. Mm. So, you know, mentors, you know, giving, subtly helping people get better. It's a good thing. Excellent. That leads us to the computer store. Uh, it seems that you had several. Were you the manager? Did you own them? How did you end up with all of these computer stores? So the be- the backstory on that was I was doing the race car thing and becoming increasingly disappointed in um, like the racing because um, my stuff was getting banned and I was looking for something else. And I went over to a friend from high school to his garage and he had put together a computer and he had tricked a vendor into selling him parts at wholesale. So he showed me a computer and he said, like, this computer cost me $700 but it normally sells for like $1,500. Ah. And I'd already like had a taste of you know, my entrepreneurship, like selling race car chassis. I'm like, whoa, you know, that's a lot of money for very little effort. You know, I was welding and grinding and bending metal and stuff just to make $700. And um, it's like, wow, that's a business. And I, we went together and I opened a computer store together. So I sold off all my racing stuff and I, I funded this computer store with him and uh, that didn't last too long. Now that I'm older and can see back at what went wrong, I blamed him for the longest time that it was his fault. He kind of booted me out of the the store at one point and we had this huge like legal battle and stuff. And um, what it really, I think boiled down to is I was really rough around the edges. And so I just didn't know how to play well. And uh, he was probably a little bit more mature than I was. But um, he booted me out of the store. I lost everything. All my money I invested um, was pretty much gone. And that wasn't really fair. Um, But I went down the street. I actually moved out of my apartment. And I took my deposits and started couch surfing again with friends. And I rented this little old barber shop. It was a single seat barber shop. And unbolted the barber chair and threw it out in the alley in the back and (laughs) took just the little bit of money that I had. I I still have the bank statement, which is awesome. From the day that I opened my own computer store, it was something like $600 in my bank account. It was, um, 
And so I didn't have any money to buy inventory. So I would sneak over to his dumpster and I'd pull out all the boxes, these colorful boxes for the computer components. <laughs> and I scrounged up enough money to get some store fixtures. And I just put these empty boxes all over the computer store to make it look like I had inventory. And customers would come in and they'd be like, well, I want to buy that video card. And you'd be like, oh, you know, that video card, that one's reserved. But uh, if you give me the money, um, I'll have one here in a couple days. So there was a distributor close by and I would, every morning I would drive over and get stuff and then just bring it back. And, and I was pissed off because this guy had screwed me over, I thought. And uh, so I would, would do anything to put him out of business. So that was my goal. And like if someone came in and said, you know, your ex-business partner there uh, is selling this widget for $10, I'd be like, well, I'll do you one better. I'll do it for eight. So um, I got people catch on to this, this discount. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was okay. I was still mostly making money. And uh, eventually he closed up his shop and I created this huge buzz around the store um, that it was just an exciting time. Um, I was selling so much product. People would drive in from other cities and deliveries would come and there was no loading dock here. So the the truck drivers would drop it on the sidewalk and I hired one employee and he would watch stuff and we'd break it down as fast as we could and we'd bring it in and I would be like, you know, taking the money from the, the customers and they'd be lined up. It was, it was such a magical time. This was a, around 95 and everyone was, you know, everyone had to get on the internet to surf their porn. So it was just, <laughs> <laughs> Emergency. And I, I made a lot of money um, really quickly. Um, had a lot of hurdles, like stuff with having to be mentored to learn how to like sell and be relatable. But eventually I opened another store and another store and another store and eventually I had five and um, quite a few people working with me. And then in 2000, the whole computer market changed. The uh, The margins of the computers went from like, you know, four or $500 per machine profit down to like 175 and even lower. And I mean, we were trying everything. We were selling satellite dishes and cell phones and video games. And we even put together a little um, network gaming center, you know, before broadband was like really popular. And Mm -hmm. we thought maybe that would be the thing that would save all the computer stores. And we were all, it was like a big family too, which was really, really neat. Like, because we're, I learned how to hire people back then. My first folks, I I tried hiring were all like they went to these technical colleges and got degrees and whatever, Microsoft certified, and they were not all that motivated. But what I found, the best employees were like the 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 kind of nerdy, um, the guys that were still living with their parents at 30 years old, and they just loved computers. You couldn't keep them away from the computer stores on their days off. They would just be there tinkering around and they were the best employees and we became friends. We network gamed. And, but when the decision, we had to make the decision to start closing stores, it was really emotional. We were, you know, we'd all pitched in and tried all kinds of things and we're crying and we're just like, People are volunteering to like who's gonna uh, who's gonna keep leave. going and I gave some of the stores to one of the one of the one of the couples and then closed some and 
yeah. Hmm. So that's a good story. But I learned a lot, and um, it was a really good ride, and made some money along the way, and then lost it all trying to to uh, help my friends keep their jobs. I'm sure that's a good experience, though, being an owner and having people working for you. And that's, you know, training all in itself, being a business owner and having employees that look to you and, you know, management and all that. So I'm sure that's useful. You know, it's interesting. I'd stumbled onto, like, um, you know, we'll probably get to this about Valve, but I really didn't try to manage anyone at all because I just expected people to do and chip in because it was just, you know, we we're kind of like a family and it, it worked out. And, like now that I work for Val, it's like, wow, it feels like I'm back to uh, like the computer store days. Like, oh, anyway, awesome. we'll get, get to that. Those are always the best environments. <laughs> and Tintin, do you want to share any of your computer stories, Tintin? This, this sounds a lot like your childhood um, messing with things at Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, my, <laughs> my background, my gateway was uh, uh, when I was really young, um, my parents got me a 8088. Uh, PC and I wound up taking it apart and you know doing a whole bunch of stuff with it but I had computer equipment that people would throw in dumpsters that my dad would be kind of like well I have no idea what this thing is but I'll bring it home and you know try and play with it so for me taking apart the PCs and trying to figure out all that sort of stuff I had a small little business going before I was really old enough to fully understand the, the power of a buck where people would bring their stuff over and kind of go this thing isn't turning on this isn't working you know try and fix it for them and they're kind of like well you know how old are you and 12 13 taking this thing <laughs> apart so they sort of had some experiences where people were kind of like okay i am now old and they're only like 25 30 but that generation gap of non-pc to pc i was sort of riding that surf surfing that that wave coming in to uh land that really, that reminds me of all my early struggles with trying to get credibility with people for being young. Um, now I wish I could go back being like <laughs> old, but um, yeah, that was always a struggle. Like uh, even with the computer stores, you know, I'm like 21 trying to do this thing and look like I'm 16 and um or even way back to my dad's gas station. Like, he had me working there pretty young. People wouldn't let me put gas in their car because they thought that, you know, whatever, I'd blind myself because I was, like, 12 <laughs> and trying to pump gas. A lot of my, a lot of people that I dealt with uh, sort of kind of gave me the, the hairy eyeball at the start because they're, of course, older, so therefore they must know how to do all these sorts of things. So when a kid does it, it sort of took them to a moment to come to the appreciation that, okay, they don't have to do that. There's people that can do this. And then sort of there was the appreciation there and taught a couple of people how to maintain their own systems afterwards. To this day, they still, you know, will turn around and thank me or joke about that, that thing. It doesn't help that you're jury rigging machines to give you extra tickets when you're out and, <laughs> <laughs> Other things of that nature. Ducky you Chee. engineers, you're tricky. Ducky Cheese should have had better security on some of their <laughs> their port mechanisms, or at least had better uh, screwdriver bolts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, this takes us to chip designing. So tell us about the C1 and the inspiration for that. Okay, so after the computer stores, um, 
uh, I wanted to, I've always liked electronics, so I wanted to get into electronics. And during the computer store days, I had the opportunity to get some tools that at the time were kind of, you know, expensive that I could do um, circuit simulation and do chip simulation with these FPGA chips. These are field programmable gate arrays. And just like racing cars and just like opening the computer stores, I started telling people, like, I'm going to get into doing chip design. And everyone said, well, you've got to go to school for that. Like, I don't think so. I, th I think I could probably learn faster if I just do it myself. So what I did was I made a circuit board with these tools and I put one of these chips on it. And I started, um, I knew if, if I wanted to get a job, I had to prove that I could do this stuff. So I started making chip simulations of video generation, of sound generation, um, input, output, all these different blocks that you would use in a system. And partway through, I decided, like, well, I had a Commodore 64 when I was a kid, and I love that computer. Why don't I just take all these pieces and make a C64 on a single chip, um, which this FPGA chip was big enough that it could do that at the time and emulate it. So um, I took this design, and I would start going down to Silicon Valley, which I lived in, in Portland, Oregon at the time. Hmm, that's and funny. yeah, I would, I, I started off, I still had enough money that I could start flying down there and I go to these chip design and, and embedded systems conferences. And then I would sneak in and then I would try to find the most powerful person at each booth and like try to schmooze them. I'd like go past <laughs> all the booth bunnies and stuff and like, yeah. How do you sneak into a con? Now I need to know. Oh, well, hey, <laughs> I can tell you how to get into packs. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. <laughs> See, if I, if yeah, I, I knew the I'm badges looked like, if they looked the same from year to year, I could can definitely make a fake badge for packs. But they're smart like that. They change these things. <laughs> See? Um, the comments of the, the gray story. The comments of Genesee <laughs> and Jerry Ellsworth do not reflect the, <laughs> the podcast. No one heard that. <laughs> Yeah, do remind me of the PAX story. It's relevant and funny. Um, <laughs> hopefully I'll be able to get into PAX with, um, uh, legitimately, legitimately this year. But <laughs> yes. uh, anyway, I'm sure you will. Story. Um, so, um, these conferences are expensive. They, people that go to these conferences usually pay to get in there, um, and their company pays for them. So I would sneak in. It's pretty easy. You just walk towards the door with conviction, like you own the place. And make no eye contact. And if you hear the security guard say, miss, miss, you just keep going and you just lose lose them in the... Oh uh, <laughs> and if that doesn't work, if they catch you, um, I mean, the security people are the least motivated people. You know, they're bored. They're not going to chase after you. Um, if that doesn't work, then you just go in a side door. You just wait for someone to go in a side door. But I would go down there and I'd try to find um, the people of power in these different booths and then, like, get them, pull them off to the side and, like, you really need to see my board. And I'd pull this thing out and, like, all right, this is what I've done. It's got all these different blocks in here. And, and if you ever need any of these things, just call me. And I'd have business cards just handing them out like mm. crazy. And um, eventually I started um, getting little jobs and people really took advantage of me. I mean, I was working for, like, $12 an hour or something, like, less than you know, working as a welder or something I could just go do because ah. um, I had experience. Um, but eventually I started getting a reputation of doing really good job. Um, 
Oh, maybe I should go back to the Greyhound buses. I It didn't happen so easily. I had to, eventually I was taking Greyhound buses and didn't have enough money to get a motel. I would go to the conference and then get back on a Greyhound and drive all the way back to Portland. Um, but yeah, I got, I got a reputation of doing a good job and started making more money. And then eventually what really busted my career um, wide open was um, since I'd done this Commodore 64 and it was on the web, um, a toy company approached me to make a toy based on the Commodore 64, which was this old 8-bit computer that had really good games back in the oh, 80s. I remember. Yeah, and <laughs> so they wanted to do 30 games in a in a in a little joystick that you just plug directly into your TV and ran off batteries. And I'd never done a full product design before at that point. I'd only done really small things for all these other um, startups and stuff. And this so is said, hugely well, ambitious because, I mean, the amount of units you're shipping. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, How did, so they asked did you if I could do it. And I'm, I just took a, a, a big gulp and I'm like, no problem. And uh, so not knowing anything about how to, like, do a chip from the ground up by myself, I, I just started doing it. And I would talk to the chip manufacturers and I'd have to pretend that I knew all the lingo and it was tricky but um, I got it done in like a ridiculous short amount of time I think it was five to six months um, total turn on the entire chip so I shrunk the entire 64 down to a chip worked with some software folks that ported all these games over to work with little nuances of my chip and um, now I read about this and I want to stop you for a second, is it that the technology has advanced so much from the time the Commodore 64 was made to when the computer chips that you were manufacturing were out and you were able to reduce this? Or is it something I need to understand because everyone seems to think this is like an amazing, dumb this down for me, this amazing feat, taking the entire 64 into a chip. Well, at that point, so back in the 80s, the size of the transistors were quite large because they hadn't refined the process as far as they had in 2003, two, or whenever I started doing that project. Three, I guess, I did that project. Um, so the transistors got smaller, so you could put more stuff on a single chip of a, of a certain size. Okay. So I had actually stumbled onto a sweet spot, just pure luck, that the transistors had shrunk to the size that a little 99-cent chip could do everything that a Commodore 64, which cost 800 bucks or whatever, wow. and had 50 chips in it back in uh, in 1983. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how it scaled. Just and okay. right now, you know, if I were to do something else, I could probably put like a Sega Genesis or something today because everything shrunk more. How oh, easy. Okay, Can I continue with your train of thought. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Tinsy, and what? Um. Just as, for your own personal opinion, as a developer and designer for these game systems, have you at all have you played at all with any of the Raspberry Micro PCs or followed the Ouya Kickstarter project? And if so, have, do you have any thoughts on this next generation of people coming through and doing development work for microization of? Um, I th I think it's pretty cool that people can take commodity parts that. You know, the Raspberry Pi and the Ouya, uh, however you pronounce it, are pretty much just kind of low-end um, ARM-based um, cell phone chips that they plop down on a board and they can get them really cheap, so um, opens them wide open for um, 
these indie game developers to make games on this little console. I think that's cool. And I think it's, it partly fills in the gap of like when I was a kid, it was Apple twos and Commodore 64s. That's how, where all of us nerds went to, to write our games. So we did it in basic and, and now um, the same like 15 year olds or whatever are going to be doing that on raspberry Pis and, and, uh, and they sound so delicious too. They're all naming them by food. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty exciting. I, um, all of them have really big ambitious goals and I just don't know if it's going to, it's, I don't think it's going to displace, uh, Xbox or anything ah. like that. Um, just tremendous resources, um, are behind Xbox and, and these other things are always going to have to be like a generation or two behind in tech. It was really rough. Um, I made a lot of leaps of faith. I was scared the entire time. Um, we had chips made, and we were so behind schedule. I, I didn't know even how to quote the how long it was going to take because I'd never done it before. And so we were a bit behind schedule. We actually had to manufacture 250,000 chips at 99 cents each. That's a lot of money. And, <laughs> and untested. It was the only thing it had been tested on is my little emulator board that I'd made for the software guys. And then it worked on the emulator board. So we had the chip made. And then it went to China, and the factory started mounting these chips on boards, and they didn't work. And the toy, these toy guys, these guys are the most intense New Yorkers you'll ever meet. Oh. They're like, "You're gonna ruin me if oh. you don't fix this. You're getting on a, yeah, you're getting on a plane. You're going over there. <laughs> There'll be a guy and named Tony. He's gonna show up at your apartment at nine. Get I on the have plane. to admit, I had considered like, well, maybe I can just take the money from this and run to like Mexico <laughs> and get off the bed. I mean, I was scared because these chips didn't work. It was, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of. Uh, money that I spent just because I'm some stupid kid that thinks that she could do a chip. And so I went to China and went over there and we opened up the toy and I looked at the board, the circuit board, and they had changed the circuit board from what I'd sent to them. They'd cost reduced it without telling me. Ah. Well, that's kind of weird. And so I started putting my finger on the board, um, which is the kind of the debugging tool the electrical engineers use, is to add capacitance and short <laughs> things out with your fingers. And sometimes things good happen. You can in infer what's going on. And all of a sudden, the thing booted up. I saw the Commodore 64 screen. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank God. And uh, Now, had they made all of the product at that point, and they made it with the downsized bits and had to redo it? Or what happened? So um, they always do a pilot run. So you get your first silicon back, and then the production line has been being built up to that point. So there's plastic tooling, there's circuit board tooling, there's um, a, the assembly line with all the ladies that sit there and solder the thing together and put it into the case. So this was just their initial 100 units. So they, they squirted out 100 units or something that were okay. defective. And, uh, so that's so, their loss for being cheap. Yeah, I could go on and on about like all the different. I got into doing toy design after this for quite a while, and um, there's lots of problems with manufacturing in China, and they try to cut corners and replace parts and stuff like that if you don't watch them like a hawk. Well, I, I want to know what the annoying howling toy is because your Wikipedia just says there was an annoying howling howling toy. It <laughs> doesn't even call call it by name. What is uh, the howling actually, toy? There's a couple toys that I designed or I prototyped at least that I thought were pretty magical. 
Um, and Howling Hounds was their code name for it, which I thought was really cool. Um, so the concept was that the toy um, would be a little dog that had a certain amount of animation, like its head could bob or its ears could move around. And it would have built-in songs that it could sing. And it would have either a radio transmitter or an infrared transmitter that could transmit the notes that dogs could accompany um, oh, wow. it with. So each dog had a unique voice, um, you might say, unique tonality to it. And then um, whichever one was the master would transmit the notes and then they would sing. And we were going to have these gameplay stuff where you would tap the dogs and rhythm and do stuff. And so we prototyped it up. And we had some plastics made, um, prototype plastics of to show the animation. And before doing all the work of the wireless communication, we just put wires between the, the communication. And then the toy company is like, hey, this is awesome with wires. We're just going to go with this. And Small children, like, oh. wires? Yeah, I'm like, okay, <laughs> whatever. You know, I was working on other stuff at the time. Um, fought, you know, I tried to fight a little bit. Like, you know, really the compelling thing is that you're going to go into Toys R Us, you're going to touch one of these, and then the entire wall of these things are going to start talking because they're all talking or oh. transmitting to each other. <laughs> yeah, that would have been pretty magical. <laughs> that would have been magical. Um, they didn't get it, and so they went down this path. Um, and then they decided the wires were a bad idea, which is pretty obvious, right? So they decided to make it standalone, and they're like, well, we don't really like the singing thing. That's already been done, so let's just, we're going to call them Rescue Me Pets or something like that, and they're just going to sit there and writhe around and whimper, and it's, it's supposed to make kids love them because they're so pathetic, kind of lonely sound. Or whatever. <laughs> so the toy came out, and I did some searching around to find it, um, and the reviews on Amazon were things like, um, gave this to my son. All it does is whimper, makes my son cry. I tried to turn it <laughs> off, but there's no off switch. <laughs> it sounds like the Furby a little bit. We have four Furbies, and one of them doesn't turn off. It just snores, and then after a while, it stops. Uh, I heard Runs that you battery. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it just stops for a while, but if you move too quickly, it will start talking. So you know, you lay down to go to sleep, and it goes. It scares everyone to death. The Furby was a, a an awesome toy. I actually know one of the designers of the Furby, and he was telling me the stories of how he um, took a psychological approach of designing this toy. He identified that people, there's lots of different types of people. There's like mean people that want to hold it upside down and shake it and just torture it. And there's people that want to coddle it and love it. And, and so he took all these personality types and he put some way that you could do that to um, the Furby mm -hmm. and um, he made a language and he very carefully selected these phonemes for the um, the language that sounded like uh, recognizable English but mm -hmm. were completely gibberish and there was a lot of a lot of deliberate stuff in the Furby and it really shows. I love the one that's coming out this year. Have you seen the new Furby? I know. I love that it can like turn mean and sit there and go yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it interacts with your iPad or your iPod and it learns English. How how smart is that? Brilliant. I'll have to ask Dave if he was Dave Hampton was the designer, one of the designers of the I heard you built a, a fire breathing Furby. Oh wait, you're talking um, I can't a, a toy that I'm really disappointed never made it. And this was about 2004, 2005 time when you know there were still computers 
I mean, uh, still a lot of um, TVs with composite video in. So I made a, a virtual pet, which was a Tamagotchi-type dongle that had an LCD screen, and then a docking station that hooked up to your television set. And the, the trick was that your cable box would plug into the, the um, docking station, and the docking station would plug into the television. So it passed through. Oh. So all video goes through. And then um, if you plug in your Tamagotchi, your pet can be overlaid onto the live video. And it could come occasionally out onto the screen. And then it would do things like it might poop on the screen or it might scratch a hole in the screen. It would just be this really cheesy overlay graphics. And you'd have to you know, use your little remote control or something to interact with it. And then it might leave the screen for a while. Um, but I came up with this way that I would take the closed caption is encoded in the video stream. So I was detecting closed caption, and then I was doing word detection. Well, okay, I'm saying I was. I was. I designed the hardware, software. <laughs> software people helped me um, ah. refine the software. I sorry, sorry, software people. I always marginalize you. <laughs> um, so uh, this thing, our first test, it looked magical. We had this little dog. And you would um, hook it up, and we we had an old DVD that had like key things in it that we were looking for. So like the word cat would come up, and it would get really excited and try to chase it. There was symbols for musical um, notes, mm -hmm. so whenever it saw those, it would come on the screen and do a little dance. And and we showed it to the um, toy guys and a few other people, and they were just like, "Ah, oh, this is just magical! This you're somehow making this pet watch TV." And it was all a, a little hack. Um, but it never made it because uh -huh. by the time, you know, toy margins are so tight, like a $19 electronic toy, like this joystick thing I was talking about, it has $2 worth of electronics in it. You know, it's $2 electronics, about a dollar worth of plastic, a dollar worth of packaging and logistics. They, they figure out shipping and everything right into it. And then toy company doubles that and that gets you to like 10-ish dollars and then Walmart doubles that again and that's $19. So that's the target shooting price for... $2 which is, is a ridiculously low amount of electronics so on that toy it was you know I had docking stations and infrared remotes. I see so it was that $4 was way over budget. Exactly exactly <laughs> you know <laughs> So you can figure exactly how expensive a uh, toy should be in the, or what the retail price should be by the electronics typically. You just just keep doubling it up until you make it through the entire supply chain. What is the coolest thing you've ever engineered, would you say? Oh, my God. I wish I could tell you about the stuff I'm working on now. Oh. oh. I, you know, if, if my current product... I know I'm just being a tease right now, but if my current project I'm working on makes it, it's going to be the coolest thing. Um, but let, let me go back. I think the, the thing I like the most hobby-wise, um, I made a mechanical shooting gallery that used a photocell gun, like a like Nintendo Zapper, mm -hmm. and I stuck all of the electronics and mechanics inside an old 19-inch monitor case. So I threw the CRT out, and so there were little doors that would open up, and you'd shoot a bad guy behind the door, and then a window would light up, and there'd be a bad guy standing there. And 
um, it had the the actual score that you were getting. I called it the plinkometer because mm -hmm. uh, it made a plinking mechanical sound. It was a spinning disc that had an arrow indicator on it and a strobe light that would time um, showing the arrow at the right like meter height, like this meter would be moving up, it would just be advancing the strobe light. Mm -hmm. I don't know, something about that. I mean, it wasn't very popular. People online looked at the project and they're like, eh. But for me, it was very uh, satisfying. It's like, I was half tempted to go to a toy company and say, hey, let's make a version of this Yeah. for kids. Neat. So this moves us to cool things you're designing right now at Valve. So tell us your job there and what a typical day is like for you. Yeah, so I wander in about 11 o'clock. <laughs> you better be lying. I'm not lying. <laughs> oh, really? Um, there's no one. Well, how about I just back up um, and like explain Valve a bit um, for those that don't understand. Um, and maybe I can get into how they recruited me. Yes. Um, so Valve is a flat structure. There's no managers at all. Even Gabe, the founder of the company, can't come in and say, Jerry, I want you to work on this. He can come over and ask me to work on things, and he has, and I've told him yes and no various mm. times. Um, it's, it's very much like the computer stores, again, it's like a family. Um, Valve's very careful about the folks that they hire, because there's Lots of different dimensions they look for when they're hiring folks. Um, you have to be a good communicator. You have to be very broad in your skill set. You can't be very narrow. Um, but you should also have one thing that you're really, really good at, and they call that their T-shape person. So broad and then one really good thing. Okay. For me, that's electronics. And then I'm also very broad because I... I can do a little bit of software. I can do mechanics and optics and other things like that. Um, all the teams are formed organically. So if someone has a an idea, they try to prove it out the best they can on their own. So they'll they'll prototype it perhaps in a very crude way, or they'll make a presentation, and then they'll go around the company and they'll show people, hey, look at my idea. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you have any spare time to work on it? And if it's a good idea, people will vote with their time. All the desks are on wheels. So um, it's very common to be walking through the halls and you'll see someone pushing a desk down the hall with their computer monitors all attached to it. And um, it's really, really cool because um, people will move their desks close to each other. So you might have an artist next to a programmer next to a level designer and they'll just make a little, they'll circle their wagons and they'll work really close together for a couple weeks and they'll solve this thing that they're working on and then they'll disband and then, you know, the people will go off and work with other folks. Um, Do you end up having people that you just want to hang out with more and you kind of have this is the little desk area for these people, or do people like their space and then they just move for projects? Um, I, I do. I am pretty new. There is a bit of, uh, there's people that have their favorites. So I've, I've heard like, you know, Joe Blow always comes with, you know, this other person. Okay. You know, that's like, they're the, 
the team and they're going to stick together no matter what they do. Um, so that kind of stuff exists. Do you have plugs um, like every 20 feet? How, how do you work that with all the rotating Yeah, desks? Yeah. The, the rooms are, they call them cabals. They're huge open rooms with lots of outlets and ethernet jacks. And uh, so there's big open spaces. So the, the shape of the room changes. I mean, our hardware lab just completely reconfigured a week ago. It's like wow. some folks down the hall from a different cabal were teasing us. It's like, well, every time I come in here, it's a different shape. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> keeps you on because, your toes. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. It's not always the most efficient I've found, but I think it's optimized for, um, several things, employee happiness, which, um, that's so important. I've worked at tons and tons of companies as a contractor. And if I'm miserable at a company, I'm not going to go the extra distance to fight for anything like the, the dancing dog thing. I'm, I just wasn't happy with those guys. So it's like, all right, you can have it. I'm not going to fight to keep this feature in. I don't think that would happen around valve because people are really happy and it's an open environment where, um, everyone's encouraged to communicate, um, openly. For instance, each cabal has outside, there's a magnetic wall where you can put up your concept art or concepts. And people are encouraged to look at those and then wander into the cabal and find the person responsible and give them feedback. And it happens a lot. People wander through all the time into our cabal. And that's part of the thing that I mean, it's maybe not the most efficient in the short term. But I think in the long run, it's more efficient having that connection with everyone because you were working maybe on an input device or something and someone sees our concept and they'll wander in and they'll want to play with it. You know, and I'd much rather just keep designing on it. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's, it's kind of the culture around here. It's like I got to I stop what I do, I'm doing and then or not um, and let them try it out and then get their feedback and then. So without a, a manager or somebody to review you and your work, is it the affirmation of your fellow uh, engineers and fellow people working there that's pretty much the motivator for, um, you know, joining other people's projects and, you know, other than the reward of doing your work and really loving the product? Yeah, so um, there's a yearly review, which is all your peers, people that work directly ah. with you. So... They gather up information about um, what worked well and what didn't. It's supposed to be positive. Um, And then that's all aggregated. And then someone unrelated to your group gives the feedback to you and everyone in the group. And uh, you're expected to make changes on that. Like if, if there's a red flag in there, then you should start addressing those things. And if it just keeps coming up year after year, well, then there's problems. And there is HR people around here, people that have fallen into that that um, role. Uh, people really don't have titles around here either, which is interesting. It's, you know, if I wanted to go work on a game and I felt that was the most valuable thing I could do with my time is go help with a game in some way, no one's going to stop me. They may, they may question me um, a lot. And... <laughs> Um, I mean, that's, that's it. No one tells you not to do anything, but people question you a lot. It's like, if people are questioning you a lot, um, you know, it makes you stop and think about it. And sometimes that has caused me to change direction. Sometimes it hasn't. It sounds um, like you have to be very self-motivated. 
that's one of the, the dimensions they look for. If if someone can't work on their own, if they're, there's definitely people in the world that need a manager. And um, if you need a manager, you're just not going to fit in at Valve. Um, then there's also year-end bonus. I mean, they take this chunk of money and your peers, like, help divvy that up. Ah, okay. And so if you're some kind of asshat and you're like... <laughs> I don't want to work on anything not- this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there is some motivation to get along and to, like, be productive. Um, okay. Yeah. My resume will be in in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, Valve is always hiring. Um, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, we uh, this last year, so some backstory on how I got involved with Valve. I uh, uh, do all these YouTube videos of various hobby projects. Mm-hmm. And so Gabe had seen some of these videos, and they had been wanting to get into hardware for a long time, and they'd been interviewing quite a few folks that um, were very narrow. In the hardware space, you can get narrow really quick. Um, you know, you could be a chip designer and that's all you do for 40 years and that's easy to do. So they were having trouble finding someone that could do like product development from start to finish. And so Gabe saw my videos and he's like, well, I got to, we got to get her. So he asked some folks to come talk to me at Maker Fair, I think it was. And these Valve folks came up to me and they're like, hey, we're from Valve. We want you to come interview. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Everyone wants me to come interview. And uh, right, <laughs> I, I don't. I I play games, but not really like modern games. So Valve meant nothing to me. And I guess they didn't approach me in the right way to say, "Well, have you heard of Portal?" Which I had. That would have turned my head a little bit more. So I kind of blew them off. Um, maybe not in those exact words. Um, and then they came to a pinball show that I went to. Oh yeah, I'm also a pinball collector. I have a bunch of pinball machines came to a pinball show and I'm like thinking to myself, what the hell is up with these Valve people? Why They're are stalking they... you. Yeah. Sending me emails <laughs> and showing up to events. And um, I turned to one of my buddies that was there that's in the video game industry. And I'm like, do you know this company called Valve? Uh, he's like, yeah. He's like, they keep asking me to come in for an interview. And he like, he's, his jaw dropped. He's like, what? <laughs> you, you're like not going and doing this interview. This is like mecca for um, a video game designer. You're like, oh, okay. So then, like a week or so later, they contact me. Like, well, Gabe wants to fly down to Portland to visit you. See, like, they're okay. probably pursuing you because they've never had someone reject them before. <laughs> I, I guess maybe, maybe that's it. Um, it's Ooh, pretty shiny. flattering now. Yeah. It's flattering thinking back that I was just blowing them off and that they're like, <laughs> I'm far so, too cool such an you, amazing Val. company. Um, so Gabe came down and he kind of put things in perspective. I'm like, well, maybe this Valve company is going to stick with hardware and, it, you know, they're pretty serious and they actually have some money. So um, maybe they could do it. So I, I flew up a week or two later and was kind of funny. I was, they wanted me to interview for a full-time position, and I've always done contract work. I'm like, I don't want to work for anyone. And they're like, well, we'll just come meet with us. So I show up, and I, I'm in this room, and there's probably 10 people in there around the table, and it was like this rapid fire. People were like, all right, you're going to make a game controller. How are you going to do it? Go. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, 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 I'll do it like this and that, and you know, use my toy contacts and da da da, and then someone would quickly like whip out some other thing. 
what I'm finding, what I found out, or now that I've interviewed a lot of people and understand the valve culture, they were looking for things like product focus so that I could think about the customer and that I knew the entire process from concept all the way through production, um, which is one of their dimensions that they look for. And I don't know, maybe an hour or two into this like intensive interview-ish thing that wasn't supposed to be an interview. <laughs> a couple of them got up. Gabe got up, left, and um, then one of the guys came back in, and he's like, hey, Jerry, come with me. So they took me down to the fourth floor, and they started, like, showing me the, the building. They're like, we just moved a cabal a group out of the space. You could have this entire half the building if you want. Do you think that's enough space? You know, if we knock down walls, um, would that help? Um what kind of tools, how much money would it take to get a hardware lab going? And, um, <laughs> you know, and they just started treating me like I was working there. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I, I told Gabe at one point, I said, you know, a hardware lab could be very, very expensive. Hardware development may be just beyond what you guys want to do. It's like, it might be like a million dollars just for tools. And he, he laughed and he's like, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. So I was supposed to fly back that evening, and they, they asked me, well, we have a hardware company coming through that wants to pitch us an idea. Can you just, we'll pay you your contract rate if you just hang around for three days. And you just come in, work with us a bit. And like, okay, I have nothing better to do this week. And they just kept treating me like I was working here. By the end of the third day, I like met with their hardware vendor that was coming through. And it's like, hey, this place is pretty sweet. Yeah, I'll, I'll work here. <laughs> so that's kind of the story. Long-winded, but no, nice, <laughs> nice. Hey Jerry, uh, you, you touched on you touched on something uh, back there. You and I share a enjoyment of the whole process from start to finish, instead of just being pigeonholed into one little portion of the project. Do you feel that keeping that wide breadth of exposure um, for the whole process? What you see things more clearly? Because sometimes I try and explain to people, you know, instead of just looking at one thing and being really good at that, it's trying to expand, look at the whole process. Exactly. Is good in as many parts of that, which makes your job more fun, I guess, instead of just being the person screwing in the <laughs> bit on a yeah. Line. Yeah. So it's it's a couple dimensions. I. Fun is definitely part of it, keeping things a nice variety. I would be so bored if I had to do the same thing every day. And I've been in situations like, you know, I thought chip design was going to be my my life. That was life dream. And after a while, it got kind of boring doing that day in and day out. Um, um, but the second part of it is I think the people that make the best products actually are involved all the way from start to finish, like Dave Hampton and the Furby. Like if he didn't actively go out and do all this research in psychology and research in like finding the cheapest microcontroller. I mean, it's all these stories he was, he was telling who's a great mentor for like my toy design. It's like, yeah, that's the way you do it. You have to think from the customer all the way to how can I make this thing manufacturable with high yields? And so it won't break or, you know, doesn't take extra screws when they're putting it together. I think you would be more passionate about it if you didn't have to just hand off your section and if you could see the finished product that you're working for and it and didn't feel like just part of of that. Um, I think you would that be works, very attached. <laughs> that works very well at Valve. Um, that's where Valve 
really shines is that everyone has input into the projects. Um, I've certainly seen in other companies where they just want you to do your bit and just don't meddle in the big picture because, you know, they've got managers that are um, so much smarter than you lowly engineers, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and, think, and you get pretty crappy products out of that. You get, well, it's you a shame when somebody asks. right down the hall knows the answer to your problem, which you can't ask. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, the, the company I worked for just prior to Valve was exactly like that. It was a chip company and they were very compartmentalized. And um, I had to try to work with parts from all these different groups. And I'd walk into these groups and it was just like, they're pissed off that I was there. Like, who's this person intruding from another group? Oh. <laughs> yeah, so be some downsides to that. I think of Valve uh, mostly for Steam and software. Uh, how does the hardware fit in with Valve as far as your typical day? I still want to know, the 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah, so 11 o'clock. Um, so 11 o'clock, I'll go over what my day is like, and then I'll, I'll cover what it what it means to Valve. So I, I wander in at 11 o'clock unless there's something pressing to get me in earlier, um, and I'll stay until I'm finished. Um I'm a nerd, which I really enjoy what I'm doing. So, I mean, just last week I was in until four in the morning because mm -hmm. it's like I'm trying to prove a concept and I want, you know, I'm trying to sell it to the rest of the company. So I'm like really driving to get this thing done before this other event happens. So I did that last night. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I wouldn't do that unless I felt that it was the best thing and that I actually had a voice around here. If it was just a nine to five, I'd be gone. I'd be in nine and out at five. So... Um, so usually my day consists, I wander in, grab some coffee, and then I, um, just kind of wander into the hardware lab and everyone's kind of wandering in around that time. We have some folks that come in earlier and some that, that stay later. It just depends on their, their life situation. And then, uh, the communication starts. I just like start chatting with people. So my colleagues, um, that are working on similar projects. So ask them how it's going and try to get a, a status update just kind of on the spot. And then I explain where I'm at. And probably the first 30, 40 minutes is just the exchange of information of like where we're at. And, you know, the interesting things come out of that. So, you know, you know exactly what everyone's working on every single day. And then if they run into a roadblock or they get something done quicker, you kind of know their availability or where they're having problems. So people are constantly shifting their priorities and kind of horse trading their time. So, you know, if someone's having trouble with something and be like, well, you know, <laughs> um, if you work on this bit of software for me a little down the road, I'll try to jumpstart this thing. You know, it kind of works like that. It works <laughs> really well. Right? Yeah, it's kind of like horse trading in a way. Um, and that's how it goes. And then um, we're working on new concepts and then we have the ideas of where we want to go. Uh, Valve Hardware wants to be... They want Valve hardware, the company wants Valve hardware to be like they do software. Um, hardware's typically been like there's a decision made early in the design process, and that's what gets made a year later. They want to do it more iterative, where we're probably going to screw it up a, a quite a few times. So we might make something, and we're going to give it internally to folks to try. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to get early feedback on that. And it's going to be expensive, like each one of these things might be 10 times their normal cost because we're only going to make a couple hundred. 
And then after that, we're going to make some tweaks to it. And when we feel confident, we're going to go and make a thousand and then maybe give those out to folks on Steam and like get feedback on that and do that iteration process until we're confident that we have the best product. Are these, so these are all game-relating hardware? And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's heavily focused on games, although Steam is not necessarily entirely focused on Steam on uh, games. So our our direction isn't necessarily to only come up with game things. And so we have initiatives going on that are non-game related. I just saw that about uh, accepting right now people's software for other things, uh, different s subjects on Steam that were going to be hosted rather than just on gaming, which is interesting, Greenlight and some of the other things like that. Yeah, Valve is very much... Um, uh, Gabe, Gabe it, Steam was his baby. He really wanted that to happen. He believed in it way before digital distribution was even, you know, eclipsed Apple and all these companies and did it way early. And um, he drove that project, and now it's hugely successful. And folks around here think of um, as Valve is more of an entertainment company. It might be multimedia. It might be games, um, applications. And you're starting to see more of that um, in, in Steam. Steam Workshop, you know, users are generating their own content. Mm -hmm. Um, which is so cool. I mean, it's, it's, I just love that aspect. It's like, because the users are far smarter than we are and they have more, they can hyper-focus on things and just make it so much better. And that's what we hope we can do with the, the hardware too. It's like get stuff in their hands early, you know, and make sure that they have the best experience. So we have been public about some of the stuff we're doing and I can, um, we did talk about wearable computers, which is, Somewhere like maybe like four or five years down the road, it's like nothing near term. Um, so we we decided strategically to talk about that effort in in hopes of recruiting people mm. into our hardware department. It was very difficult. Like the same thing, I had um, no one knows Valve if they're a hardware person unless they're a gamer, and we were having a, a difficult time recruiting. I mean, the group has grown a whole lot. It started with me, and now we're you know, the entire side of the fourth floor is like our entire group. But it was so brutal trying to find uh, engineers that were T-shaped and, you know, <laughs> outgoing and social and self-motivated. Yes. So, but the wearable computer stuff is very cool. It's, uh... Um, I've seen the Nintendo purse. What, is, what does this mean, wearable oh, computers? Oh, yeah, you know, maybe that's why I caught their attention. <laughs> like one of my hobby projects years ago. It was just a gag. I put a Nintendo in a purse with an LCD screen and um, two Velcro Nintendo controllers, and it functioned. And Love that. That was back when, you know, it was kind of difficult to do, like, even LCD screens portable. So, I don't know. People really loved it. It got, like, I don't know, half a million views or something on YouTube and tons of blog posts. <laughs> I doubt that's what they I mean by wearable computers, but... It'd be nice. That? <laughs> I said, I doubt that's what they mean by wearable computers, but it would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a project for PAX, if I can get it done in time, which will be um, wearable computer-like, but not anything like we're really working on around here. So I'm excited about that. I, I might actually get it done in time. Um, so yeah, wearable computers, I mean, we're definitely going that direction um, someday. Um, 
our computing devices are going to be more integrated into our clothes maybe. Mm-hmm. Head-mounted displays, we might put glasses on and just play our video games that way. And that's all stuff that we're researching and um, throwing a lot of money at it, which is cool. I mean, going out and getting stuff that's really expensive now to try to evaluate it and see what it's going to be like five years down the road and design, design simple game concepts to see if there's anything there at all. Do you, do you think that recently Google purchased Motorola and the thought is that they're going to use Motorola as sort of their R&D test bed? for stuff that they can then license out. Do you think Valve would be in a position if they get various bits of hardware together that they would actually um, sort of use that to seed equipment out through licensing into a broader, more organic developing market yeah. side? Or do you think that they would be sort of, of the Apple approach, which is a very closed ecosystem? And so Gabe has told me directly this is his motivation for starting the hardware department. And um, Steam survives because of open platforms that um, people can compete um, on a level ground. And those are going away all the time. Um, Apple is very closed. And if Apple doesn't want your app, your app's not going to be on there. And that... Um, that's not really the way Steam works um, and Valve works. Is they they release things early, um, they want to release them whenever they want to. So, yes, um, we will produce hardware if we want if if it's the right thing to do. Like if we if we have to, we'll build this device and ship it out. But we're not against licensing stuff out and seeding the market because we're just here to make sure that there's always friendly open platforms for um, Steam and Valve and all this infrastructure to live on. And that might be wearable computers five years from now. Um, other things, I mean, you probably heard about the Linux um, initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys are just around the corner from our group and a lot of work's going into that. Um, One of the chat questions is, how is that the Linux being received within Valve? Is it taken seriously or is it just something that takes a passing idea? That's a chat room question. I think it's very serious. Um, uh, as I found in Valve, anything that you do, you're going to have um, equal numbers of people that are gung-ho for it and equal people that are don't think it's a good idea. And, you know, I, at first I was struggling with this. It's like I'm, I'm coming up with ideas and people aren't liking it. And I was asking some of the old-timers, and they're like, that's okay. Well, remember when we did Half-Life, or back when we did Half-Life 2, Half the company thought it was a stupid idea, and well, well, the people that were on board, you know, showed them, and so, yeah, I think it's being re- received all right. Um, I think okay. it's pretty exciting um, that I, I don't want to speak for their group because I mean, they'd be better at uh, relaying the information, but it's pretty exciting. I see a lot of excitement around it. You've said, my indication from what you've said, is that you're not a gamer per se. Have you taken up gaming since working for Valve? How does gaming relate to you at all, if, if at all? Okay, I, uh, I was a big gamer in the 80s, mm. you know, Nintendo and Commodores and all those things. And in the 90s, I played a fair number of PC games, um, like Command and & Conquer and Lemmings and all those kind of games, and played Counter-Strike when that was the thing, like maybe early 2000s. And uh, then I, I kind of faded away from gaming 
and got into doing pinball. Um, so that was my thing, more uh, tactile, real world kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you restore and, machines? Because that's kind of I, a thing. Yeah, I have um, between 80 and 90 machines now. Oh, where do you um, keep them? <laughs> <laughs> I actually, a crazy thing I did a few years ago with a friend, I started a pinball business in Portland. And um, now I'm moving away from Portland, I'm shutting that business down. But we put them in bars, and then I had a huge collection myself. And it all kind of stemmed out of, I got to the point where I had like 20 or 30 machines and no room for them in my house anymore. (laughs) My friend's like, well, um, I know where there's a bar where we can put some of these. And it actually turned into a big chunk of change. People like playing Mm -hmm. pinball. It's like, hey, that's kind of cool. And it fed my addiction. So that's how I (laughs) with 80 to 90 machines. Some guys have two 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 car garages. I got all this this space. (laughs) You have two car garages for pinball machines. (laughs) Um, I have about 15 machines at Valve. Oh, no, more than that. Maybe 16 or 17 now. Machines at Valve. I just scatter them around the halls. So <laughs> kind of funny story. It's like no one can tell me not to bring them in. They can just question question me about it, I guess. So the facilities guy, Backfiring. after about four machines, he said, um, do you think four is enough? Like, you know, like, a, like I, I think this is enough, Jerry. Stop. And I'm like, well, maybe. And then some of the um, old timers started playing the machines like very regularly. And then uh, they were over there playing. I'm like, hey, what do you think if I brought a few more machines in? And they were like, oh, that would be so awesome. So like, you know, once a month or so, I slip another machine in another <laughs> corner somewhere in Val. But I just moved snack to machine, machine, 15 pinball. Yeah, I just bought the new X-Men pinball. A brand new for 2012. Just went out and paid cash for it. It was pretty. It's pretty sweet little machine. I got the ACDC um, pinball machine that was last month's new machine. So it's exciting. Oh, so back to gaming. Um, so that's what I did. Is I played pinball. Um, which pinball has all the same gameplay aspects that you would find in PC gaming. Um, you know, there's objectives and stuff like that that you have to complete the mission. You know, hit all the targets in the right way. And um, so now that I've started Valve, I get like every game that's on Steam. So that's been kind of bad news for <laughs> almost spare time. Um, I can't imagine. I have so many games on Steam that I don't play now. Um, if I got every one free, I would never I know, leave my like chair. Games or something. It's like a. <laughs> I mean, does the summer sale like it? It, ins- it inspires reverence <laughs> and like this mad rush out here in in the gaming populace. In, yes. is, is that in, in, infectious within the within Valve itself when they see this the sale start and everyone just hit the systems and go through? You know, does that energy kind of carry forth into the next series of projects? Or, um, yeah, the summer sale was. I was around for both summer sales. Um, that was, yeah, the excitement is pretty high around summer sale in certain groups. Um, there's groups that are designing games and they are completely removed from anything that Steam and Steamworks and all that. So there's there's these little clusters of people that you know will be very excited because a new feature comes out. Like the SFM and Meet the Pyro, oh my god, that was so cool. Um, I, I don't know if you guys saw the, the filmmaker. Um, so I was excited about this for a long time. I wanted to tell people about it because I thought it was the coolest thing that Valve was working on, and it was non-game related, really. Um, so it allows, it's like a regular linear, vi- or non-linear, is that what it is? Oh, well, a video editing tool. 
but you can use all the assets from your Valve games as characters. So you set up a timeline and you run your characters around, you record them, you know, teabagging each other. <laughs> and then um, you have cameramen, which are actual players that you run around in the actual environment in the, in the set. And, and it's all done in kind of like gameplay mechanics. And then you can edit it like a video. So you can, wow. it has a timeline, you cut and paste these different things and you can fly your cameraman over and it's, it's like so cool. And it's what, it's their internal tool. They released it um, to the public um, to do whatever they want with um, for free. I don't think there's any cost involved with it. And it was um, released at the same time, Meet the Pyro, which is just a hilarious video that um, showed what was behind the mask of the Pyro in Team Fortress, which has been this huge debate apparently for five are years. The, are it's you like, the Pyro, Jerry? <laughs> I might be. I am a bit of a pyro. I burn things quite often. <laughs> oh, yeah. I tell you stories about losing eyebrows and eyebrush, or, uh, eyelashes. Um, but yeah, that was exciting. And the, there was so much excitement around that. It's very exciting for all of our gaming friends, too. People just, there's memes going around just throwing their money at the screen. And so many people <laughs> I know just spend ridiculous amounts of money during the summer. So this brings it. I'm supposed to remind it's, you about Valve is very generous too. I mean, there's, um, it's not all about making money around here. I mean, the summer sale generates a lot of revenue, but it's, it's kind of a give back to the, the customers. And there's stuff in the company like the source filmmaker and the comic books and, all these things generate no direct revenue. We don't charge for them. But people feel that it's valuable, and that's what they they go off, and they spend part of their time, they do it, and they release it, and it generates all this like goodwill in the community. And you just don't see that in other companies. I've seen a thumbs up here. Absolutely. Yes. I'm supposed to remind you about PAX. You had a funny story. And oh, all right. I know this is bad. Don't ever do this. It's bad. bad <laughs> Disclaimer. Bad. All right. But something good came out of it. So I wanted to go to PAX about four years ago or so, and I uh, waited, and I couldn't get tickets for the full weekend. I could only get, like, Friday or Sunday or something like that. So I went ahead and paid for those, and then that was, like, the week before or something like that. And so they weren't going to mail me the badge. It was going to be at will call. But I really wanted to go Saturday to make it worth my trip up there. So I asked a friend to send me a picture of his or her um, badge packs, uh, <laughs> packs badge. Mm -hmm. And so I got this picture <clears throat> front and back. And then I, I have a laser cutter. So I cut a piece of plastic out the right shape. <clears throat> Sorry here, I have to get a drink. Sorry, I've kept you talking for an hour and a half, but I'm sorry. I'm going I'm no, to keep right. you talking. I'm, I'm having a great time. I mean, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting to reveal some of the um, inner sanctum of Valve, which is like, yay. yay. You know, it's like I never get to tell anything about Valve because <laughs> yeah, you just never know. So I, I might I might get people questioning me next oh. <laughs> week about this. I'm, I'm, I'm nerding hard here. It's very good. <laughs> All right. So back to the, the PAX badge. So I cut this thing out. I used my laser printer to, to print a piece of paper that had the right writing on it and stuff and, and symbols. 
used a laser cutter to etch a piece of foil to look like the hologram, and I stuck that down, and I lacquered the whole thing. And then I took some LEDs. I'm like, well, if I'm going to, like, you know, do something ridiculous like this, like make my own PAX badge, why don't I, you know, spiffy it up a bit? So I made this little circuit that blinks some LEDs, and I put it on the back of the badge and glued a battery on the back and then put a lanyard on the thing. And uh, want to draw attention to your fake badge? <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Okay, carry on. <laughs> so I show up at PAX. I, I um, go up there, and I, I walk in the door, and the first security guard I see is like, ma'am, come here. And I'm like, oh, shit, here it comes. And then he grabs my badge, flips it over, looks at the LEDs that are kind of flashing through the plastic, mm-hmm. and he's like, that's cool. Did you put that on there? I'm like, yeah. And then I start looking around. I He let me by. I start looking around at everyone else's badges, and the dimensions I got were like 20% too big or, or more. Oh. My badge was huge. It was like giant. And <laughs> no one noticed all weekend. All right. So I got into PAX. Yay, that was fun. And then got kicked out for wearing my skates and stuff. But that's another story. Um, then afterwards, I had, at the time, I had my workshop and I had a live video stream running 24 hours a day and quite a few people would hang out with me and work on projects together. You know, they'd give me suggestions. They would work on their own projects and we'd share and that's a long complicated story. But, um, like I feel kind of bad that I robbed, um, Penny Arcade and it's like, how would I put this? And everyone liked the badge and it was getting around the net and stuff. And I'm like, why don't I put it up for charity? Like whatever, Whoever will bid the highest price will get it, and then I'll mail it to you, and then the money will go to Child's Play. So I don't remember what the dollar figure was, but it was a big chunk of change went to Child's Play for uh, my fake badge. Awesome. So PAX folks, if you're watching, you know, I it turned out well. the right thing later. Yeah, I turned over a new, <laughs> calls it New Rock. New Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's talk. I might have to do again this year. Are you going to sneak in this year? I can't believe you'd have to sneak into PAX. That would be ridiculous. They would invite you. Flying (laughs) colors. Anyone in PAX watching or listening, uh, how do I get a badge? It's it's a slacker. (laughs) You see, I'd like to be your keynote speaker. Just say you're not. I've got a really cool wearable computer thing if you let me in. I might be wearing skates, though, which your security guards will get ticked off about. Now, I should ask, because I did see a girl dressed as R2-D2 with skates, so they kick people out for wearing skates? Well, you know, the, the facility security does. The actual PAX goons or whoever they are, they don't really care. So a couple of years I would go, I went with my skates, and most of the time it was okay. Because I played roller derby, and, and I don't know, I just always take my skates around. I'm supposed and, to ask you what your roller derby name was. Oh, yeah, I'll go bringing it back, back to that in a sec. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of funny. The the PAX security guards were trying to chase after me all weekend to boot me out, and I would just dodge him and just take <laughs> off and leave him. And uh, eventually they caught me on a mezzanine, kind of down where they were doing all the rock band stuff or above the rock band stuff all the time. And that, like, three of them started closing in from different angles. And I'm I'm sitting there like, looking at them it was funny i was bobbing my head back and forth looking at each one like where's my hole where's my hole and <laughs> finally they just like swooped in on me and like grabbed my arm and they're like all right you gotta go i'm like all right i'll leave i'll 
like, no, we're going to roll you out. So they like rolled me through packs oh. by my arm. And like, people are like yelling at leave roller girl alone. <laughs> oh. I hear so. though that if you play and beat the uh, Rain Soak Precipice uh, Penny Arcade game on Steam, you, uh, you get your badge that way. <laughs> Is that how oh. you get the packs badge? Maybe I can make some bot or something to do it. Welcome to the Faulty News Network. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't they just let you take your skates off? I mean... No, no. They they actually shoved me out a side door that had, like, these long stairs down. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> yeah, so I, I couldn't even... I had to take my skates off and walk down the stairs and then put it back on so I could roll back to my, um, to my motel okay. to get shoes because I didn't have any shoes. Um, so my derby name was the rectifier um, and my number was one in 34 and that was an inside joke to all my electronic friends so that's a diode part number which is also called a rectifier and to rectify uh, things is to you know yes that's um, really clever did you spell it so, w with a w oh i should have the rectifier hey jerry to rectify yeah. uh, your roller your roller skate situation at future paxes, you can just get the shoes that have the built-in roller blades that you can pop in and out. So oh, if, rollers, you see, if you yeah. see the goons, you can goons, you can just uh, pop them back Release. in, and you walk around like you got sneakers on. Otherwise, I, you can slide around. I would do that, um, but those are kind of limiting. I I love my skates. I have a set of artistic skates with the heel. They make me look like twenty feet tall, and um, they have very. Um, uh, steep angles on the the trucks and stuff so they turn really sharp so i can twirl and do all kinds Ooh. of fun stuff and like zip around the conferences and impress people and get lots of attention which i love <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny about the rectifier thing uh very you know the mentality around derby was very much like around the racetrack it's kind of you know a lot of roller derby girls are kind of rough around Ooh. the edges and uh they would well, I shouldn't say it, but not always the brightest. And they would say things like <laughs> rectifier. That sounds bad. That sounds sounds like rectum. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> That's where you'll be when I knock you over. That's right. I wasn't very popular there because I was very aggressive. Mm. <laughs> Neat. Neat. Yeah. We should talk about your web presence and your YouTube uh, videos as well. So what inspired you to share your secrets and make this YouTube channel do-it-yourself uh, engineering? Okay, the, the story of that goes back to 2004 where I didn't have much web presence at all except for just on a few forums. And I didn't really like having a lot of presence online because there are a lot of trolls out there, of course, and made me feel bad. And I have a bad self-image because being picked on in school and stuff like that. But, and now uh, you're adored by millions. The best payback ever. I, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming to my high school reunion. Yes, yes. I have a Wikipedia I, page. My, Thank uh, you. I'm, I'm on... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do feel some vindication. I'm on Wikipedia... Um, on my hometown's Wikipedia page is famous person from that town. Ooh. So I'm like, in your face, uh, <laughs> Dallas. Your, your LinkedIn profile is apparently dipped in gold. Dipped in gold? What's that mean? It's just, it's like this amazing, I've never actually seen a better LinkedIn profile. Oh, oh okay. Wonderful. <laughs> so, um, 2004, 
I met John Markoff. He is a reporter for the New York Times, and he liked the toy, and he liked the story behind the toy that I built, the Commodore thing. And he's like, I want to ask you about this story. I'm going to do a, a, a column in the tech section of New York Times. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's great. And so I started talking to him on the phone. He's like, you know what? I'm just not getting all of it. I want to fly out and, like, see your home lab. So he flies out, and that time I was living back in rural Oregon in this little tiny town called Yamhill, which is like population 900 people. It was awesome. I could do my chip design work on my front porch looking at cows across the, the street. <laughs> and he comes out there, and I spent like all afternoon with him. I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work he's going through for a, a little column. But when it comes out, it was like this big like huge like multi-page thing and it was my entire life story of like picked on in school all the way to like building race cars and it was really like, made me look superhuman I guess and uh, and then all of a sudden everyone online wanted to contact me actually it was kind of weird um, they were contacting my father because I had no phone number or email that people could find. My dad was freaking out and I was traveling at the time in Canada and he had no way to get a hold of me and he was freaking out because random people are calling asking for me and when I got home after this whole ordeal um, I had these messages from my father and it was like the first one was alright something weirds going on people are calling <laughs> for you and then um, are you okay and the second one is like um, all right, I, I cornered one of them and asked him what's going on. Apparently, you're in some kind of magazine and, or some newspaper. And then the next one was like, I went down and got the the newspaper. That was great. Oh, my God. <laughs> First, what have you done to, wow, you're awesome. <laughs> I like that. So I, I started, like, engaging folks online a bit with that. And then I got kind of creeped out because um, there were, like, straight up um, people, like, asking me to marry them. <laughs> And then there were like the sneaky people that wanted to ask me to marry them or date them or whatever, which that would first come across as normal and then like twist it around to be a little creepy. So then I pulled completely back and like shut off from having a web presence at that point. And for maybe four years or so, that's what I did. And then maybe 2008 or something like that, um, I started working with this company that made video equipment. And... Like, you know, people are posting a lot of stuff online. People are still trying to track me down and talk to me at these conferences, and they're posting a lot of stuff that's not right about my my life. Uh -huh. They talk to me for five minutes, and then they would make a blog post, and then all of a sudden that would be the top Google search. And then when I go for jobs, people would be Google yes. searching me and, like, having all this wrong information. I'm like, this is really bad. And... um so I was working with this company do, doing video streaming equipment. So I started doing a couple of YouTube videos, and I started playing around with streaming video, and I started talking to some of my friends, like, you know, what if we did a, I want to learn about video, live video production. What if I just got some equipment from work and we just do a Sunday show where Saturday we build interesting projects, and then we just unleash them onto the Internet on Sunday. And we, we set up this hour-long show, um, which eventually morphed into our fans of the show start asking us to leave the cameras on um, during the build sessions on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then 
on Saturday, we kept running over to look at the, the chat screen to see what they're saying because we were down soldering on stuff and machining parts and things. And uh, eventually we put a projector up so we would just look at the screen. And then uh, my friend Monty's like, well, what if we do speech synthesis? So he started pumping all of the text from the chat room into speech synthesis. And so then the chat room was being read to us. Is that creepy? I, it, was, <laughs> it was kind of... This was such an amazing experiment. Um, I really want to document, like, at some point. It was, my colleagues were ridiculing me for being, doing this. They thought it was the stupidest thing ever. I mean, this was before Google Hangouts and Ustream was, and Justin TV was just like this weird little new thing. Hmm. And um, I felt pretty weird doing it, but I was, Bound determined to explore that space. And I was making YouTube videos and putting them up on, on these different things. And like the chat room, this live stream eventually turned out to, I just left it on all the time because it was got so complicated with speech synthesis, Skype machines that people could call into my shop. And <laughs> there was a big screen there that this person's face would show up. And they would like, there'd be a person talking to me like, Jerry, you should use a different type of transistor for that and this is why and then they whatever hang up and go away <laughs> or, <laughs> or when I wasn't there people would be calling in on the Skype lines and communicating with each other and broadcasting to the world through this this constant live stream Wow! Crazy. it's hard to describe it was crazy and awesome and did, did that for a couple of years and um, eventually I kind of let that fade away and that that entire community lived beyond my experiment. And right now there's a thing called Geek Streams. I see them um, talking about it in chat. I didn't know what that was. Yeah, so they, they, they you know, I had like $20,000 worth of equipment from this um, new tech company that I was working for to do all this stuff. It was so difficult to do back then. And then eventually, a couple years into it, things got so easy that now they could do it on a web page and all the speech synthesis is you know i think it's done locally now on their the machines and it's mm -hmm. it's outlived me and now it's gone and grown on to this other thing and um all these folks get together and do their projects together on geek streams and that's funny so then i've i went from that i decided to just focus on youtube videos because it was more manageable and so i've got i don't know 200 250 youtube videos and lots of views and i I do projects that um, tickle my fancy. Like uh, my latest project is a bass guitar that is the body of it's a Commodore 64. And then I have a pickup for each string and I measure the frequency that's being played on the string. I run that through the original sound chip that was in the Commodore, the 8-bit sounding sound chip. Wow. And I resynthesize it each string on that. And then the keyboard is down below the strings. And on the keys, you can play it like a keytar, and then you can use those the other buttons to change the wave shape. So you can like make the uh, strings sound like a sine wave or a mm -hmm. square wave or sawtooth, and uh, so that one was fun. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about Valve? Because if you're in a mood to talk about Valve, we are in the mood to listen. Valve. Um. I am completely amazed um, 
it's it's neat that I've, I have fans that I run into from time to time in like airports or down in Silicon Valley. I run into a lot of folks that have seen my electronics videos. Mm -hmm. But um, this whole Valve angle and being associated with Valve has opened up like more people like knowing me and approaching me in various ways uh, from the game angle. And I, I feel kind of, uh, it, it's kind of odd because I don't necessarily know everything about the games that they're asking me questions about. And they're so excited about Valve and people love Valve so much. Um, it's, it's really, really, that's, that's the thing about Valve that's really cool. It's like, they always try to do the right thing and treat their customers right. They don't always succeed, but they try. And, uh, the fans love them for that. I mean, there's constantly tours coming through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Has it been a weird transition going from kind of like the rebellious youth and I would imagine having great power in engineering would lead to great mischief as a youth and then kind of <laughs> growing up into working for this company that's like the epitome of, you know, independent creative thinking and is admired like worldwide. <laughs> Speaking of mischief, uh, the, the hardware crew is probably one of the most um, mischievous groups out of the entire company because we have this power over things. And uh, <laughs> Literally. Um, for instance, around Christmas, um, we found that my key card for some reason would go into the server room. And so we for some reason with- you found for some reason that <laughs> happened. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> just, just one day so, it just fell into there. I don't know what happened. So there's music that plays in all the bathrooms, and there's this internal mailing list that people are always complaining about the music in the bathroom. So of course we're going to try to target that. So for months we were searching around trying to figure out how in the world um, they were pumping the music into the bathroom so we could take control of it. We were even considering going as far as like replacing the speakers with our own speakers and and doing stuff like that. But um, we like searched every room that we could get into in the middle of the night around here. We couldn't find anything. And finally, there's like this back door to the server room. And I just put my card key up to it. I'm like, oh my God, I can get in the door. <laughs> and we go in there and there was this rack system. It says um, bathroom music server or whatever. And we we research it really quick and it's like, oh my God, this thing is wide open. We can just talk to it over the network. And <laughs> so we Shanghai the uh, the bathroom music during Christmas and uh, there's this Hawaiian music uh, or Hawaiian Christmas song. I don't remember the name of it, but it's like really upbeat and it's really cheesy. We found all these covers of it. We found like an 8-bit version of it. We found a uh, death metal, uh, operatic, you know, we had like a dozen different versions of this and we set up our own remote server and we started pumping the bathrooms full of this like Hawaiian Christmas music and in between each um, playing of the music we had GLaDOS from Portal saying different things. There was, we found all these great sound calls that were things like, um, it's totally normal to start to, um, you know, getting get electrocuted, touching the walls, or I advise you not to touch the floors. <laughs> and so the whole company was just like turret symphony, turret symphony while you're peeing. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole company was freaking out about this, like who's doing this? And then the IT guys were trying to shut it off, and then um, we constantly were running back to the bathroom, like oh they shut it off again. Then we hijack it again. 
And we just kept doing that all day. And finally, there, to, to figure out who was doing this, they went through like all the door logs and they tracked it down. And uh, yeah. So, Jerry, since you're into mischief, uh, is there, and we have to get a scoop out of this somehow, um, are you guys uh, developing Skynet in there and do I have to worry? <laughs> what was the date that it was supposed to go active? I can't remember. They keep, a while ago. They keep a changing ago. it in Photoshop, and so no, I don't remember the real date. <laughs> we are working on some pretty cool stuff. Um, um, it's neat working with such a – all the folks we've hired for hardware are so product-focused and can think clear to the customer. It's neat working with a group of so many people that we can actually look at this far-fetched stuff and actually start to figure out a uh, pathway – that we can maybe deliver some of this really complicated wearable computer stuff in the future, or even, I mean, there's shorter term goal stuff too. So, um, yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna make some pretty cool stuff. Um, we're probably gonna botch a few things, and uh, hopefully the the fans will be understanding and won't be too mean to me because I'm sensitive. <laughs> I'm sure they won't. <laughs> I love how the robots. Uh, sentience and do robots deserve rights discussion has become so uh, such a huge like debate back and forth before we've even developed robots that have a prior of being sentient it's like it's already <laughs> something people argue about just for the sake of it i bet we're a long ways off from that but you never know <laughs> mm, true okay last question oh. what advice would you give those interested in engineering especially women um, okay, advice. I would suggest that um, it's probably going to just go back to the earlier suggestion is um, if people are critical about what you're doing, um, just just try to weigh it. Is it hurting anyone or hurting anyone else? Then, um, And you believe with all of your heart that it's the right thing to do, then do it. And do that with engineering. Um, in engineering, um, you have to be willing to fight for your ideas or you're going to get run over. And um, I, th I think the problem with a lot of women is uh, they sometimes will um, let people run them over because they're just ganged up on mm. so many men around and they just kind of corner you and try to bulldoze you and run you over. So stick to your guns. Believe in yourself. I don't know. It's all, you know, it's all like tacky <laughs> stuff. But Nevertheless, true. I just, it, a lot of this stuff worked for me. So it's like every time someone was complaining, um, those usually were the projects were, that were the best. You know, the more the more complaints, the better they, the projects were. All right. We're going to take chat room questions now. Uh, chat room is asking, I'm supposed to ask you about your first DEF CON I don't know what I'm supposed to ask you, but perhaps your first trip to DEF CON. Uh, so first trip to DEF CON. This might be Bobcat. I think this yes, is... Yes, yes it is. Yes. Hey, Bobcat. How are you? Um, who is also very much part of this chat room stuff. So I met Bobcat way early. I mean, maybe 2001 at DEF CON, which was a very neat experience. Um, I think that was the year I was on roller skates again and ran from the cops. Um, <laughs> I could be wrong. It seemed to be a source of trouble for you. Yeah, I know. It's skates, trouble. We were in a 
No, that was a different DEF CON. Well, anyway, this is a good story. I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, we were in uh, the casino, and people were throwing bottles off the top of the building from the penthouse. So the cops came and started busting all these parties. And I'm at DEF CON, which is, you know, kind of an edgy show. I'm not going to hand my driver's license over to any cop. And so they were stopping people and taking everyone's licenses down. So hmm. I was trying to get away from them. And so I was trying to sneak around the backside of this hallway. And then a cop came around the corner. It's like, miss, come here. And I just booked down the other direction and then turned <laughs> around the corner and went flying up these stairs on my toe stops and then skated as fast as I could down this hallway. And then I saw a door open and I zoomed in and then there was Bobcat in there. There was kind of like a little mini party going on. Like the cops are after me, you know, protect me. And I'm like trying to take my skates off. <laughs> so for the rest of the weekend, I was like, people were walking by me and like bowing, like, Oh, you ran from the cops, <laughs> which was not all that uncommon when I was just this punk teenager. We used to just go out in our little town and we would just try to dodge the cops. That was just our fun after curfew. You know, you see a cop and then you just, you know, the, the group would just go off in all directions. <laughs> Mischief as a child. <laughs> all right. Bad. Question, as seen on TV, pinball machine happening, not happening? So far, not happening. So this is a pinball machine that I put together for a hack weekend. So we used to do these hack weekends in the chat. And uh, so it's just a homebrew pinball machine. And I, I got pretty far. I, I showed the concept, but I don't have too much interest to continue on that one for, for now. Okay. Let's see. How does Valve feel about DRM, and how do you feel about DRM? I'm not a big fan of DRM. Um, I, I think that a lot of it's ridiculous in the hardware space, and that's my angle. Um, for instance, DRM on video links up to the monitor are absolutely ridiculous because you, know, you might encrypt the video and make all this hardware really complicated and consume a lot of power for no reason because at some point it's got to turn into real pixels um, and those pixels can be plucked off at that time. You know, even holding a camcorder up to a, a screen is like the easiest way to do it. And anyone just slightly savvy with electronics could pluck off the pixels um, right as it goes into the monitor itself. I mean, into the, the, the glass itself. So it's not really fail safe anyway. Yeah, you know, every time, you know, I've worked on a, quite a few chips that have security in them and it always ends up the same. It's a, a week-long meeting of all the engineers together, about ready to take each other out to the parking lot and beat each other up. And my favorite thing to always say to them when we're talking about different security mechanisms, for chips at least, is that, you know, no matter what you do, I've got an electron microscope in my garage, and I can take the top off that chip and see what you're doing. You know, and I'm just an average person. So most of this stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. It's It's like putting locks on your your front door it just keeps the honest people honest. Mm. Let's see. I wanted to ask why you think lately a lot of gaming companies are the target of people stealing basically identity theft or hacking in to get lists of people. Why do you think that game companies are being targeted in particular? Hmm. I just think it's just a large um, populace of folks. I, 
Um, and what would you do with such information? Because it doesn't seem like they're actually breaking into individual accounts to to steal your you know your characters or whatnot. And, and it doesn't seem like credit card information is necessarily being taken. So what what would be the purpose of something like that? Hmm. I don't know. Um, spam. What? Spam. Just spam. Send using the email Maybe addresses. Spam. Um, Carding. I know there's some cases out there where a lot of the 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 people involved with the hacking were just doing it as a challenge. Yeah, I just think back to the days when I was a kid and screwing around war dialing with my modem, like every phone number in the, the town to see what modems existed out there. It was not to cause trouble. It was just exploration. That's entirely the case, exploration. Hmm. Okay, let's see. What else do we have? In the meantime, while she looks up another question, uh, I particularly like the Slayer pinball. Slayer? I don't know that yeah. one. Uh, there's, it's a band, but there's... Uh, I Is it a custom pinball? Nope. I think it's, um, I think originally it was a iTunes app pinball game. And then I, th I saw one where they had made it into a, uh, actual physical cabinet. Wow. I'll have to look that up. I, uh, thought I knew pretty much every pinball on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot of them. So now I take that back. There's a lot of pinball machines. They've made them for like 80 years. So there's a lot of them pre 1970 that I've never scene. I want to throw a thank you out to Jessica who introduced us and she also oh, wants to know she can be your sister. I love Jessica. <laughs> That's her chat room what? question. Can she be your sister? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right here. She's she's always been my sister. Yeah, Jessica um, ran into her. I mean, a lot of you probably know her from PAX. I mean, she's amazing. You go to PAX and you see her and she has like guys swarming around her like, oh, Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> Fun ladies too, I guess. But um, yeah, she would occasionally would drop into our chat room. Uh, she discovered our stuff that we were doing, and she would contribute. So yeah, she like had her own custom voice and stuff in the chat room, and would <laughs> you know cut up with us, and it was a good time. Excellent. Okay, uh, we are getting ready to close. Is there anything else you want to share before we do? No, I think we covered. Covered it all. I really appreciate. It. I've had a great time on the the show. Um, oh, it's been super fun. Thank you for letting me fangirl all over you. <laughs> well, any any time you want me on, that'd be fine with me. It's a lot of fun. I've oh, I've been away it. from the podcast scene for the last year, doing uh, all this Valve stuff. Been pretty stealthy, not making many videos or anything. So it's kind of fun. You're the the first like podcast this year. All right. Hey. Yay. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Gray Area Podcast, which is entirely supported by listeners like yourself. So this is the portion of the show where I'm going to ask if you enjoyed what you heard and you enjoyed listening to other episodes, you visit the website genesee.com, J-E-N-E-S-E-E.com, and donate uh, whatever you can afford. And if you can't afford anything at all, then uh, write me a note because I love notes as well. Um, you can also write an iTunes review, which is a nice way to say thank you. I like to think of it as if we were somewhere, would you take me out to lunch and say, hey, I love your show. Let me take you out to lunch. Well, maybe one day we would go out to lunch and I would be all girly and say, oh, I just want a salad. I can't possibly eat anything more than a salad. And maybe it would be that sort of lunch. And then maybe we would go out another time and I would eat steak. <laughs> so that's how I like to think of it. Um, 
as far as the donation aspect. Uh, if we were together and you liked the show, would you say, hey, let me take you out to lunch in appreciation? So this is the taking out to lunch portion. So thank you for your support in any way, and I hope you enjoyed the show. It was really fun talking to Jerry. And okay, a big thank you to Jerry, and you can find her on Twitter at Jerry Ellsworth, and most places at Jerry Ellsworth if you're if you're following her on YouTube as well. And if you'd like to leave some feedback or keep up with the news, you can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, email your questions, advice, or suggestions to geneseygray at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. Bye, chat room. Thank you, guys. Bye, guys.